chapter 2. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. I said in the first service, and it's still true, um, even though this one's even a little bit more true, that I always thought the most difficult sermon you could ever preach would be your first. Um, And man, I've been proven wrong today. Um, That when you come to a place and you get the privilege of standing in a pulpit, I I made reference even to the fact that in many pulpits I don't find... um, rephrase. Many pulpits don't cling to the scriptures like this one does. Um, I'm so thankful for uh, the opportunity to be at a church that, that, that clings closely to the authority of God's word. And the reason um, that makes it a little bit more difficult for me is because I, I'm not coming in bringing something that y'all have never heard before because we are so grateful to have a pastor like Pastor Wade that does indeed cling to the scriptures. And, and so coming up here is an intimidating task. And let me be honest with you, I told some of my friends from seminary that I had the opportunity to preach at Longview Point, and they said, that's terrifying. And, it, and, so, and that's all because of the reputation this church has to cling closely to God's word. And so coming up here for the first time, I was rather intimidated, but I was comforted by the fact, once again, that the Scripture is the authority by which we all rest and and are comforted. And uh, I find myself today even a little bit more fearful, Um, not um, not because I'm intimidated by the crowd, because I love each and every one of you, and I know that you love me, you've demonstrated that over the last year, Um, but because as we venture forth uh, out of here, as Mercy Hill launches next week, We want to make sure that we have the exact same foundation. That the reputation of Mercy Hill Church very similarly mimics the reputation of Longview Point. It is the church that clings closely to the Word of God. It is the church that reaches out to see the lost saved. But more importantly than anything else, it's a church that refuses to compromise. We live in a world where where everything is up for negotiation, that the church compromises time and time again. And so what I wanted to bring to you this morning is uh, maybe a little bit of comfort as you send out a new church, because I can imagine that that could be somewhat of a fearful task. When you're sending out a new church, what are they going to look like in a year? Are they still going to be faithful to all the things that that we wanted to see in this church? Are they going to be faithful to reach the lost? Are they going to be faithful to cling to God's Word? So what I wanted to do this morning is go back to something that I said the very first time I stood on this stage. When Beth and I came to give our testimony and talk about why we wanted to be church planters, uh, I mentioned a sermon that I wrote five years ago. And it was a sermon on this particular passage. This one varies a little bit, but ultimately it was a sermon that I wrote, and when I did, it dramatically changed everything I believed about the church. Because at that point in my life, I was steeped in gimmicks. I was steeped in this idea of a bait and switch. We're going to offer you something, then in, in exchange, we're going to give you the gospel. But what I found in this passage is no such thing. It's not about the gimmicks. It's not about how pretty our stage is. It's not about the building that we meet in. Ultimately, the church must be devoted to four things and four things alone. No more and no less. And so what we'll see in this passage, if you would, actually, we're going to go ahead and read. If you'd stand in the honor of God's Word and to borrow from Pastor Wade the phrase that I love, I would remind you that this is truth with no mixture of error. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings to, to, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you so chose and desire to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we're grateful that as we come this morning, we don't stand preaching the thoughts of men and, and, and meditating on those things, Lord, but instead we come with your infallible word, Lord, that it is indeed truth with no mixture of error, and it gives us everything we need to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We live uh, equipped for every good work, and Lord, as we spirit, Lord, would you do a great work to sanctify the saint, Lord, and even draw the lost to your throne that they might repent and trust and lean on Christ for their redemption. And so, Father, as we're here, we ask you, Lord, through a fail and feeble, through a fail and feeble man, Lord, would you uh, bring your word with power to your people? And so, Father, we rejoice that your word is true, and we rejoice that it will never return void. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to this text, there's a couple of things I want to point out. Um, and we're literally going to walk through. I know I didn't give you a, a handout. I'm sorry. I, I would have messed it up anyway. Um, and so what I want to do, we're just literally going to walk through this passage word by word. And so if we turn there, you'll notice in verse 42 it says, And they. And I really did mean word by word. They. And I know it may seem like, okay, it's, it's they. We get it. But who is the day here? I mean, we look at this passage, it's about being devoted to certain things, in particular the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. But who is the day that must be devoted to these things? Because the day is actually important. Because to be honest, I can look at other world religions and they devote themselves to things that are somewhat similar to this. They devote themselves to prayer. Maybe it's not prayer to the one true God. They devote themselves to certain ordinances. And they devote themselves to fellowship with one another. They devote themselves even to their scriptures. Regardless, though, they'd be false. But who are the they? First and foremost, we see that the they are those mentioned in verse 41. It says this, So those who received his, received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000. The they they are talking about here are the 3,000 that have repented and placed their faith in Jesus. Friends, no matter what we do with our life, if this is not the starting place, then it doesn't matter what you do. Understand this. There are people who devote themselves to things, frankly, more devoted than we are to some of these things. And it won't matter because they didn't have the correct starting place. They did not come by the way of the cross. They did not enter into the narrow gate. Instead, they hopped a fence and they think that they are believers. Believing in Christ means that you submit to Him as Lord, God, and King. And I want to make this very, very specific because I am convinced that the church, particularly below the Mason-Dixon line, runs rampant with people who claim to submit to the authority of Christ, but they don't. You never see fruit, you never see obedience following him faithfully. Uh, I think we just had a great illustration of this considering Eli. Um, sorry, I'm calling you out, but it was a good illustration. The picture is this. A young man said, I, you know, I, I did this once. But, but I'm not, I don't think that it was on the right side of my salvation. And so even though it may be frowned upon by some, I desire to be obedient to Christ more than I desire to protect my own reputation. That's what obedience is. It is killing off everything in you that desires your own glory and saying, the heart cry 
is that Christ may be honored and exalted in my life. This is the day that we're talking about. The day they're called the Ecclesia. If you look up in, in uh, verse 38, it says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are indeed those that were called to him. And if you are the ones that are called to him, then that means you will produce fruit in your life. See, it's important that we ask the question, are we actually the they mentioned here? Have we submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Is he the, the one we bow to every single day and we say, you have absolute authority and I have none. Lord, would you put me to death so that Christ may be exalted in my life? That's the day that we're talking about. And I'm convinced that where we live, unfortunately, this uh, cultural Christianity has been birthed. And there are people that seemingly devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers, but there is absolutely no power in their life, and there is no affection for the God they say they serve. Friends, we can't be like that. You see, the, the Christian that devotes themselves to these things does so from a place of love and affection for their master. Not because they desire to produce some... Uh, salvific uh, work in their own life. Because ultimately, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer will not save you. It won't. The only means of you to have any righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And maybe, maybe that's best illustrated in the person of Paul. Paul lists all the reasons that he is righteous. And frankly, none of us want to go up against that list. You'll lose. Paul had more righteousness than any of us could ever hope to attain. And he called it rubbish. Garbage trash. And I can't help but think that he was probably thinking on the passage from Isaiah that said, my good deeds are as filthy rags. Friends, if this, if this is your hope, being devoted, being a good church member, being a good southern gentleman or lady, you have no hope. Hope is found in the cross of Christ alone, submitting to Him as Lord. And by that submission to Him as Lord, you will find yourself being faithfully devoted to these four things. It cannot happen in reverse. It will not happen in reverse. And so my prayer this morning is that we would stop and ask ourselves, are we actually members of the ecclesia, the called out ones? Have we placed our faith in Jesus? And if so, then we can move to this next passage with great confidence, knowing that by the Holy Spirit of God, He will see that the saint will actually be devoted to these things. Because, friends, of our own will and volition, I'm going to be honest, I don't want to devote myself to these things. But by the Holy Spirit of God, He can do a work in our life to preserve us, to make sure through sanctification that we will actively devote ourselves to these things. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be devoted? What does it mean to be devoted? Because I, I find that when people say that they're, they're, they're believers in Christ, they always point to something they once did. You know, I did that once. I mean, I, I did that once. I was an, I was an eight I was an eight-year-old at BBS, and for the first seven years after that, when someone asked me about my relationship with Jesus, I said, yeah, I did that. I did that. That's absolute foolishness. You did that. That's like, that's like someone walking up to you like, hey, are you married? Yeah, I did that one. What? You're married or you're not. You're devoted or you're not. Devotion may have a starting place, but it's not something we look back on. It's the benchmark of our life. The believer is, is not one that says, hey, something happened to my past. It is something that is literally happening to me day in and day out. I devote myself to Christ. That's why when we do baptism, I ask the question, do you, do you plan on devoting yourself to Christ all your days? 
Because Christianity is not a moment that happens in your life. It is you have faith in Jesus, and for all your days you devote yourself to His loyal, you desire to be loyal subject to Him, to gladly serve Him all your days. And even notice this in the passage just to show you that I'm not pulling this out of nowhere. Verse 46 says this, And day by day attending the temple together. That word attending there is the exact same word that's translated devoted in verse 42. It is a process that we do. It's, it's daily. We walk in this. We attend. We devote ourselves to. And so the question for the Christian is, are we actively devoting ourselves to the things that God has ordained for us to devote ourselves to? Or are we kind of devoting here and there? Just, just you know, Sundays, man. Sundays. Sundays and Wednesdays, I'm going to devote myself to the Lord. I'm going to be obedient on these days, regardless of what Monday and Friday look like. Devotion to Christ takes no breaks. It is not something we put on our shelf. It's not something we even put aside in certain areas of our life. Like, God, you can have my marriage, you can have my children, but don't take, don't, don't worry about my job. I got that. No. Devotion is wholehearted, and it is a continuous process for the saint. It is the benchmark of the Christian life. Now, the question is, what then do we devote ourselves to? And there are four in particular. And let me point out these four real quickly. These four are the things that the church has been devoted to since its beginning. That means that today, nothing's changed. The things we devote ourselves to are not different than the things the early church devoted themselves to. The church in their infancy. Now, the beauty of that is, that means that everything we have today is sufficient for the Christian life. You need nothing else. There's never been further revelation that the early church didn't have. By God's grace, He reveals these things to us, and we are able to rest in them, we are able to enjoy them, and we are able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So let's look at the first. The very first thing the church must be devoted to is the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching, for them, at this point in time, the apostles were actually teaching. Peter has just finished a sermon, a grand sermon, where 3,000 people were saved. An incredible thing. And these people begin to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. But although we do not stand at the feet, sit at the feet of the apostles, we have what God has inspired to be written to us. Ultimately, the apostles' teaching is the scripture that we have. And the reason that we have this statement that, that, that the word of God is truth with no mixture of error is because our whole life depends on it. Everything we do is built up in, are the scriptures true? Am I going to submit to the authority? And if that be the case, we we rest comfortably in the fact that it is indeed true with no mixture of errors. That I, I hold to the doctrine of what we call sola scriptura, that the scripture alone, notice the word, alone. Nothing else. The scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice of the Christian life. If you look anywhere else to guide you in the Christian journey apart from the scriptures, you will quickly be misled. It's happened not only to the individual, but to the church as a whole from time to time. We must devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why that's the case. First of all, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. I love this word. It's the first time it's used. It's theonostos. It's God's breath, essentially. Paul coins it. And it says this, It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How then can we live a godly life? By clinging to the Scriptures. We cannot do so apart from it. It is the, the tool by which God uses to sanctify the believer. Not only that, but to lead the lost to salvation. Believing comes through hearing, according to uh, Romans chapter 10. Believing and hearing the words of Christ. It is through the apostles' teaching that men come to faith in Jesus. That means when we go to people, it's not a matter of us giving a, a really interesting or dynamic gospel presentation. Use the Bible. Use the Bible. It's what cuts like a two-edged sword. Regardless of what 
tactics you have, if you don't use the Scripture, you're going in with a needle as opposed to a sword. Please. It's folly. I mean, it's, it's ignorant. No one would ever do that in a real battle. Man, I've got these rubber bullets here. I'm looking for hoping this will work out for me. It's ridiculous. If we say that we believe the Scripture is, 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 is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's able to cut through bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it's able to bring people to salvation, why would we not use it? The early church had nothing else. And yet we see this. Notice in verse, uh, excuse me, pardon me. Notice in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They didn't use any crazy methodology. They used the Scriptures for being saved day by day. How incredible would it be, Paul's considering, if we saw salvation day by day? Do you know what's necessary for that? The saint taking the scriptures to the lost. It's literally that simple. No grand methodology, it's one to one. So they were devoted to the scriptures because through it we were able to be equipped for every good work. Secondly, we trust the scriptures because it never returns void. Well, I love this. This gives confidence to any man who stands in a pulpit. Anytime you bring the Word of God to someone, this should bring you great comfort because it says this in verse 11 of Isaiah 55. So shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. What great comfort. And secondly, if, if we know that God promises that His Word will never return empty, and look at what it continues to say, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, that God had an intended purpose for the Word that went out, how can we not go boldly and with great joy and comfort knowing that God had an intended purpose for the word that went out that day? Why would we be devoted to anything other than the apostles' teaching? It's foolishness. Furthermore, the word can also be translated doctrine. The doctrine of the apostles. Biblical doctrine. We live in a world of rampant false teaching. Even this week, something came out that was well-written, and, and it was almost like this dividing line. It was on biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and marriage. And it was this moment, and I, and I saw it coming. I was like, okay, truth's been presented. Let's watch what happens. And all of a sudden, lies and heresy erupt. This is why it's important that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings, so that when we see false teaching, we can identify it quickly. And you have to be able to identify it quickly. Uh, for example, uh, a couple of days ago... Um, uh, a lady knocks on my door. My mother-in-law and my wife were there, and, and they realized quickly that it was a Jehovah's Witness knocking on my door, and I, both of them had this look of terror, like, you, you got to be, like, nobody needs to die on my front porch today. Um, and, and this woman comes, she says, can I show you this video? I said, no, ma'am, but I'd love to talk with you. And she begins to talk, and she tells me about Jesus. And, um, and so I asked her a question, and this is the, my favorite question to ask, uh, Jehovah's Witness is, is Jesus God? And they'll quickly respond, he's the son of God. And I'm like, that's not what I asked you. I said, is, is he God? And she said, well, no, he's God's first creation. And I'm mortified. I mean, I, I knew this was coming, but it's every time it just hits like a ton of bricks because ultimately what they're doing is not, I mean, I have a heart for them. I want to see them saved, but they just assaulted the glory of God. And one must be quick to defend it. No. We talked for a little bit, and I remind, and after uh, we debated back and forth for a little bit, she began to leave, and I pointed out to her, I said, man, can I, one more thing, if you don't mind. Um, and, and I looked at her, I said, can we agree that we do not serve the same Jesus? And she said, well, no, and I said, ma'am, I need you to understand, you serve a creature. I serve the Creator. 
And I need, but, but understand this. Many people in the church would have simply listened and believed everything she said because they aim to prove unity. They want to believe that they are a member of the church. They are not. They are not. They serve a different Christ. They serve a creature. And there is an infinite dividing line between creature and creator. And so the reason that it is so important that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching primarily is because that we must um, use that teaching to reach the lost. We must be able to identify that which is heresy, which is false. And I want to point out to you this passage or this, uh, this quote from R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this uh, passage. It says this, Doctrine is one of the most politically incorrect words in the church today. Don't talk to me about doctrine, people say. I don't need any doctrine. All I need to know is Jesus. And man, that sounds so good. It does. And we're, we're swayed by that little argument. But ultimately, even just using this lady as an example, her Jesus can't save. Only Creator God, the true God, true man Christ, can save and rescue and redeem that which was lost. Doctrine is important. You can tell me all day long that all you need to know is Jesus. I'm going to say yes and amen. How do you know him? You know him through the scriptures. But let me continue his statement here. This is how far we have come from the first century church, which focused its attention steadfastly and continuously on coming together to study the doctrines of the apostles. Today, the apostolic doctrine is in the scriptures. The early church was a Bible-studying church, steadfastly, continually devoting, listen to this language, to devouring the Word of God that came from the apostles. Can that be said of us? Devouring, feasting on together the Word of God. Because this is what it looks like to be devoted to the Scriptures. This is what it looks like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And we live in a society, unfortunately, where the church has become biblically illiterate. We don't know the beginning from the end. And you expect to be able to identify lies when they come into your home? These are the lies that will sway your children away from the biblical doctrines that we find that are actually able to save. Healing of these things is not an option for the devoted follower of Jesus. We must be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And as a church, Mercy Hill will aim to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. I love the language he uses. The fellowship. Matthew Henry said this about this passage, about this verse. Um, Joint fellowship with God is the best fellowship we can have with one another. That's good. Joint fellowship with God is the best fellowship we can have with one another. And, and let, me, let me tell you why this is so important. The church is made up of people who are incredibly different. I mean, just consider the room that we have before us. We have people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have people from different ethnicities. Frankly, we have people in here from different countries. And we've got people who come from a, a, a background of being, just ha- having a terrible home environment. And then one that came up in, the, in just the greatest possible Christian home. What unites the church? What actually makes it we can sit down and have a meal together, that we can have real fellowship with one another, not fake fellowship where we're just kind of, hey, how are you? And that's the extent of our conversation. But actually sitting down and deeply being involved in one another's life. Football won't satisfy that. There's a thousand different football teams uh, represented in here, and y'all kill each other with love, of course. But the reality is the only thing that can unite the church truly in real fellowship is the fact that we all submit to the same Lord. One of my favorite quotes, I just love this saying, it's the only unity within the bride is the groom. 
We all long to have fellowship, intimate fellowship with the with our God and King, with our groom. And so if we're going to have true fellowship one with another, we must first and foremost have true fellowship with the one true and living God. It's the only way that we can get past the differences that the world throws us. How can y'all be united? I mean, look at our world right now. It is in disarray. Disunity runs rampant. And it does so because sin runs rampant. There's nothing to unite people from different backgrounds. If the churches not have unique fellowship, we look just like the world. Nothing worse can be said of the church. But you look like the world. And so we must have true fellowship. And it's, a, and it's a, a beautiful thing to be able to sit down with someone and you know it when you see it. You know when you've run into someone who bears the name of Christ and loves Him dearly because you can sit down and you can have conversations like you have been best friends since you were six. Talking to each other about the struggles in your life. Talking to each other about the things that God has revealed to you over the past couple of days. Just recently I sat down with a guy who really I should have no relationship with. And yet we find ourselves eating about once every two weeks and we, we sit there and run, run our mouths nonstop about our great high priest. And we love it. We cherish it. Our unity is not in our background. Our unity is in our, 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 our high priest, the one who rescued and redeemed us, who brought us into his family because we are both brothers in Christ. We are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. And so my prayer for you is this, that we be devoted to true fellowship because in it, the church is actually sanctified. If we don't devote ourselves to, the, to these things, we will find that our sanctification will be a slow process. And rarely will anybody call us to repentance. And the church needs people that love others and say, repent. And there's no greater kindness we can have for a brother and sister in Christ than to, to plead with them, repent of your sin and trust Christ in the Lord. Now, I said this in the first service, I'm going to say it in the second too. The greatest detriment of the church right now is that Men are so poor in doing this. Women, it seems, have, have, they do it a little bit better than us, men. But guys, the fact that we don't fellowship with one another, the fact that we don't enjoy Christ together, is to the detriment of our family. It's to the detriment of the church as a whole. We must be people that, have, that, that long to gather with other men and celebrate Christ together, to be open about our, diff- our, our, our pains, our sorrows, to be open and even have conversations about uh, the doctrines that we hold to. We must be people that long to gather with other believers because in it, iron sharpens iron. It's a great tragedy, and frankly, it's a cancer that runs rampant to the church. We must be people, men in particularly, that devote themselves to fellowship one with another to the glory and praise of Christ. It's necessary. And the early church devoted themselves to these things. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, uh, let me give a disclaimer here. There are two interpretations of this phrasing, breaking of bread. The first one, the one that, I mean, I'll tell you what I agree, what I believe. So the breaking of bread, first of all, could be what we find in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So many people believe this breaking of bread is actually sitting down and having a meal together. Uh, I am convinced what you have here is the Lord's Supper being observed. The reason I believe that is because you notice in verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Well, 
the church uh, here were meeting in homes. And it was a common way that they would meet. They would, they would gather in a home and they would observe the Lord's Supper together. And they would actually have a meal and fellowship with one another. Everything you see in this passage in verse 42 is exercised by the church through the remaining of this passage. But I am convinced that what you have here is the breaking of bread, namely the Lord's Supper. You ask, perhaps, why is it necessary for the church to be devoted to the Lord's Supper? Meaning that they do this day by day. That they meet together uh, regularly and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm convinced of this because of three major things that the Lord's Supper does in the believer's life. First and foremost, the Lord's Supper demands that we examine ourselves. It demands one of the things that should be happening in every heart as the Lord's, sake, as the Lord's uh, Supper is, 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 is distributed is as it's coming, we, we, we pause. And we pray and we do as Paul said, examine ourselves. We, we've got to be people who do this. One of the... And even if just at that moment the church would really take the time to examine themselves and repent of sin. I mean, genuinely. I mean, every time the Lord's Supper is, is served, it's an opportunity for you to stop and to examine yourself. But we don't like to do that because when we examine ourselves, we find how icky we are. When we are sinful, wretched people, the heart of all things is desperately wicked. And, and, and when I have to, when the Lord's, when the Lord's Supper goes out, it's an opportunity for me to stop and say, Lord, if you don't cleanse this in me, I'm not going to be clean. It's an opportunity for us to say, as, as Paul would write in Romans 8, Lord, would you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Would you, would you aid me in this? Would you kill my sin? It's an opportunity for us to say, Lord, set me apart as holy. I need to be holy. It's, it's a moment for us to say, I long for what you long for in my life, a holy and set-apart life, live to the glory of God. It is a moment that we must repent, and the early church devoted themselves to it, which meant also that the early church devoted themselves to repentance. Genuine repentance. They turned from their wickedness and they pursued the glory of God above everything else. So the first reason that I believe they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, is that they would be regular repenters. Secondly, it proclaimed the gospel. And it proclaimed their unity with Christ. Notice this, what Matthew Henry says concerning this passage. It says, They frequently joined in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. They continued in the breaking of bread and celebrating that memorial of their master's death as those that were not ashamed to own their relationship to and their dependence upon him. They could not forget the death of Christ, yet they kept up this memorial of it and made, their, made it their constant practice because it was an institution of Christ to be transmitted to the succeeding ages of the church. They could not be ashamed of their relation to and their dependence upon their crucified Christ. What a grand opportunity the Lord's Supper is to proclaim that dependence on Him. It's, the, it's this blood of a new covenant. It's the breaking of His grace. It's Him being wounded for our transgression. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a moment for us to look at these elements. And it, it, it's meant to be something that literally touches your hands and enters into your mouth. It's meant to entice the senses because it's meant to connect you with the idea that Christ actually shed His blood for you. And by it, you have remission of sins. When you see His body broken, that means that yours never will be. It's a moment to stop and to, and to consider these things and celebrate them together. And can you imagine the early church as they're considering these things? What great joy it brought them to do it as a body of believers that they walk out celebrating our resurrected Christ. But not only that, the Lord's Supper also has our eyes looking forward. We look to the heavens and await our faithful high priest and groom to come and get his bride. And so when we consider the Lord's Supper, it demands that we have our eyes fixed on the returning Christ. 
one of the great tragedies of my own life is from a period of 11th grade to my second year in college, I had forgotten that he was coming. I'll never forget, I was sitting in a, a men's Bible study called Man Cave, which is the best name for any man's Bible study ever. Um, and, and hearing someone say, what's your great hope? And he says, that he's coming for me. I had forgotten. The church stopped teaching it. He's coming again, and this should give the church great boldness. Imagine the early church. Even though persecution hasn't broken out just yet, it will. What do you think comforted them? My warrior king is coming. And he will crush all those who oppose him. And he will rescue me, his bride, to reign with him forever. You think they got up from the Lord's Supper kind of like, yeah, pretty good day. No. Oh, the race fierce ready to go and proclaim the, the great message of the gospel, to look forward to His coming, longing for that great day. They set their hope fully there, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2. Their hope was fully set on the glory that would be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, the church must be devoted to the breaking of bread. And friends, it must be done regularly. And I would encourage you that every time you know the Lord's Supper is being served here, if you have something else to do, cancel it. Cancel it. It's not as important. It really doesn't matter what it is. It's an opportunity for you to gather with the saints to celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and look forward to His coming. And an opportunity for you to stop and examine yourself and repent of your sins. If you can tell me what's important, more important than that, then I'll give you a free pass. We must be devoted to the Lord's Supper. Lastly, we must be devoted to prayer. There's always a moment in every... It never fails. Every single sermon I prepare where I'm going to repent. Like, it's, it's just going to happen. This is where it happened. I'm literally sitting there. I'm writing this stuff out. And as I'm writing, I realize the command for prayer is without ceasing. And I, I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to take about an hour and repent and pray. Because honestly, the church has, has really forgotten this task, and we've forgotten it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we've forgotten it because we are being amused to death. Genuinely. You know, one of the ways the Romans like to keep the citizens at, at, really at bay, kind of keep them calm, is they pro- provide entertainment. It's, there's great similarities. Netflix. I mean, genuinely, little things like that that, that we use to amuse ourselves into absolute, absolute numbness for our desperate need to pray, to seek the face of God, and to intercede for others. We are allowing ourselves to be amused to death. And even in the... Even in the when, when the deepest possible pain hits, it is meant to drive you to your knees that you might pray and seek the sovereign God over whatever circumstance it is. We find more often than not, or at bare minimum in my own life, I find that I am more ready to numb it than to use it for what it was intended to do, to sanctify me and to make me seek my Father. The church cannot be about numbing our circumstances or situations because Christ has purchased for us a great, great treasure in prayer, and we have neglected it. It is almost as if He has purchased for us the most precious of jewels, and instead of being adorned by it, we're afraid of it. It's far too wonderful for me. How do we, how do we come into the presence of God? We come into His presence by the blood of Christ. You see, prayer even in and of itself does a couple of things. Number one, it reminds us every single time that you walk into the throne room of grace that you do not do so based on your own merit. There were men who tried to do that in the Old Testament. They died. 
Right? I mean, time and time again, you see men attempt to enter the presence of God in an unworthy manner, and they're put to death. I and mean, it's not like this, like, hey, man, you should probably walk out. No, dead. Because we serve a holy God. And you walk in, you trace them with your sin, you die. But that's not the condition of the saint. When in Exodus it says, don't touch this mountain, don't even come near it, you'll die. What we find in Hebrews chapter 10 is draw near with hearts full of assurance and with confidence. Because Christ tore the veil that we might enter into the presence of God based upon His merit, and we neglect it because we'd rather do something else. I mean, really, we would rather do anything else than enter into the presence of God, primarily because it scares us to enter that presence because we know that we will never, ever, ever, ever leave unchanged. Men don't walk into the presence of God and leave the same. Not a thing. Listen to what one Puritan wrote concerning prayer. In prayer, all things here below vanish. And nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are of as little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exalts with lively thoughts at what thou art doing for thy church. And I long that thou should get thyself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys. Entering into the eternal world, I can give myself to thee with all my heart to be thine forever. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, ministers, sinners, the church, thy kingdom come with greatest freedom, ardent hopes, as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. I'd rather watch TV. I love the last phrase. As a son to his father, now the lover to the beloved. The church devoted themselves to prayer because they loved their resurrected Christ. After the first service, someone walked up to me and mentioned this and said uh, a, a friend used an illustration like this. It's, it can be, it's a little odd that after five minutes of praying, we begin to repeat ourselves. And he said, it's really hard talking to somebody you don't love very much. The life that is devoted to prayer is the life that longs for intimate fellowship with the Master who rescued and redeemed him. And if we lack prayer, it is either because we believe that we are far greater than we actually are, that we believe that we have authority, that we are sovereign over our circumstances, and we need not bother the Master with our issues, or we simply do not have a great affection for him. But the early church, they devoted themselves to these things. Let me point out the fruit from all of this. Because if we're devoted to these things, if we persist in these things, if we continue to these things each and every day of our life because we found ourselves devoted to the Master who rescued and redeemed us, what actually will happen in the church? Because ultimately, we all want results, right? We all want to see something happen. We devote ourselves to something. We work in something. We want to see some fruit from it. So notice verse 44. Actually, verse 43. And all came upon every soul. All. We don't use words like that anymore. But all of that, like, emotion where you're just like, I don't even know what's happening right now, but it's captivating me. And I I want you to understand, so many churches devote themselves to other things, and there are people that are captivated just for a moment by entertainment, but somebody's doing it better. You win them to what you win them with. Entertain them into numbness. Friends, the church didn't do that. 
They faithfully walked before their God. They devoted themselves to things that he saw valuable and all came upon every soul, both those in the church and out of the church. There was a uniqueness about the church that drove men to wonder what is actually happening there. How are these people from so many different backgrounds united? What is the apostles teaching? It's so countercultural. How? What is this Lord's Supper about? And, and they're praying. This, this, things are happening when they pray. All came upon every soul. Secondly, verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Unity in the church can only come from the church being devoted to their faithful high priest and devoting themselves to things which he cares most for. If we are not devoted to the apostles' teaching, we will have disunity, we will have heresy, we will have all types of false teachings erupt, and we won't know what to do. But if we unite ourselves and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, unity will without question be the result. Lastly, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You need no gimmick. You need the gospel. Notice this. No, there's, there's no, like, gospel plan. It's simply the church living out and being obedient to what they've been called to. It's not a matter of showmanship. It's not a matter of personality. It's a matter of the church being faithfully devoted to the things that God had ordained for the church and he used it to rescue the lost. If we want to see lost people saved, we must be a true and authentic church. It's the only thing that offers anything of substance. It's the only thing that has anything salvific. And so my prayer for Mercy Hill and my prayer for the continued service, I, I mean, it's one of the coolest things I can imagine that Longview Heights celebra- I mean, Longview Point celebrates their 15th year anniversary of the day we launched. And I trust and know that you will continue to be devoted to these things in the coming years. And by God's grace, there will be more churches planted. And by God's grace, day by day, grace, day by day, you will see people come to faith in Christ.